This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for March 10th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. And today we're joined as well by Jonathan Abraham, a structural biologist at Harvard Medical School and an infectious disease physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital. His research involves the interactions of emerging viruses with host immunity, and he's been particularly focused on using molecular approaches to understand antibody interactions with viruses and then to make better vaccines and therapeutics. This need to understand and harness host immunity has been particularly acute during the COVID-19 epidemic. Today, let's talk about antibody-mediated responses to infection and the antibodies induced by vaccination. We recently discussed two reports on how well antibodies induced by the two mRNA vaccines were able to neutralize different strains of SARS-CoV-2. And then on Monday, we published an updated report on one of those vaccines. What did we learn there? Steve, as you say, this expands upon what we'd already learned. As you'll recall, we published one letter about mRNA-1273, the Moderna vaccine, and another about BNT-162b2, the Pfizer vaccine. Both reports showed that the serum from patients vaccinated with these vaccines produced high-level neutralizing activity against the variant that's common in the U.S. and the B117 variant, which was first described in the U.K., but somewhat reduced activity against B1351, the isolate first sequenced in South Africa. This week's report looked at an additional variant which has raised concerns, the P1 strain, which was first seen in Brazil. Neutralization of P1 was slightly reduced as compared to the U.S. and U.K. strains, but far better than the South African strain. This is interesting, but it comes with a lot of caveats. First, as you said, Steve, we don't yet know how important antibody-mediated neutralization is in protection against infection and disease, and it remains possible that cell-mediated immunity could play a major role. In addition, we don't know the significance of the absolute values of those titers. Is there a level of neutralization that fails to provide protection? We'll likely be learning this soon, perhaps over the next few weeks or a couple of months, but we're still awaiting data to help us to interpret these studies. So Eric, you're absolutely right that we don't fully appreciate what these antibody titers mean in relation to protection. In fact, host immunity is quite complex, and whether the innate, the adaptive immune responses are equally important or more important than with the adaptive immune responses, what role B cells play or T cells. And even within the B cells, what about different antibody functions? And we think of neutralization, but is that really the sum total of protection or the sine qua non of what's needed for protection? And another important consideration is the issue of the presence of a level of protective immunity or inferred protective immunity, or is it that the immune system has been stimulated and we have memory so that the system is primed to respond very quickly when exposed to the antigen or a similar antigen? I think it's a very complex milieu that we are trying to understand as we decipher what protection means and what elicited or adaptive protection is in the context of wild-type infection, but specifically here in terms of vaccine-elicited protection. So a very complicated arena. You know, I'd focus on one thing that you mentioned there, Lindsay, which is the idea of memory and the rapid response that occurs upon the second exposure to an antigen. There's been a lot of focus on the so-called waning immunity that antibody titers drop over time. 
but they always drop over time with anything, with any vaccine, with any sort of protective response. But the fact that they can rise very rapidly in response to a new challenge is often the more important part than the amount of circulating antibody at any given time. I agree. But I think it's a marker of an immune system that understands the pathogen is able to respond. And whether it's that antibody response or other arms of the immune system, I think we have a lot to learn. I'm not sure how well we understand how any vaccine works in terms of the true protective mechanisms, although we have insights in different aspects of the immune response elicited. Ultimately, if we wanted to understand if antibody was adequate for protection, really passive transfer experiments are the way to do that, whether it's with HBIG, you know, hepatitis B immune globulin or varicella immune globulin. So there are different ways to look at the direct role of antibody in isolation. And that's been done historically in different ways as you know, therapeutics for pathogens have emerged. But there's a lot for us to learn about protection and the mechanisms of protection. Well, let me just point out that that experiment has been done repeatedly now for COVID-19. We're using therapeutic serum and therapeutic monoclonal antibodies, and there has been some success in using these agents, which shows that antibody all by itself can be protective. But that's not the same as saying that the antibody response we see to vaccination is protective all by itself. When we use massive amounts of antibody, it may be that we're doing something different than what happens in an innate response. So to help us understand this, let's ask Jonathan for some insight into the molecular interactions that determine infection and protection. Starting a few steps back, what happens when the virus encounters a potential host cell? That's a great question. The viral spike protein has a specific region in it that binds the host cells by attaching to a protein called ACE2. And so that part of the viral spike protein is called the receptor binding domain. And so the virus has a way to protect itself from neutralizing antibodies by hiding this RBD or receptor binding domain through conformational changes. And so when it's fully open or in the open conformation, it's also most vulnerable to recognition by antibodies. And so that's why the spike is able to sort of do this trick as a way to evade antibodies. So the viral spike protein undergoes a conformational change when it binds to the cellular receptor. What does this mean for the protein as an antigen? So I think in general term, it means that the various parts of the spike protein can move a lot. In fact, they can move so much so that from the standpoint of an antigen, a lot of very smart people have to spend a great deal of time figuring out tricks to stabilize the spike in conformations that are most relevant to eliciting the best types of neutralizing antibodies. So this is called the pre-fusion conformation of the spike, and these are called stabilizing mutations. They can be disulfides or cysteines, which work as molecular staples to rigidify the protein, or also a specific amino acid proline that can be put at specific positions in the protein to prevent it from moving around. So a lot of this work had been done with other coronavirus spike proteins. So scientists in the field quickly used lessons from those other coronaviruses to design pre-fusion stabilized antigens for SARS-CoV-2 to be used in vaccines. Now, Jonathan, not all of the current vaccines employ the pre-fusion stabilized versions of the protein. Do we know yet if it's important to have that confirmation represented in your vaccine? So we don't know that just yet, I would say. We still have to wait for those data that come out. Uh, I should mention that actually on the virus, when someone is infected, for example, the pre-fusion and post-fusion confirmation of the protein are thought to coexist. 
That being said, we also know that from natural immunity, there's a wide array of neutralizing antibody titers individuals might have. And just from a general look at the literature, it seems that vaccine-elicited responses, at least with the mRNA-based vaccine, seems to be quite robust. So a hypothesis there would be perhaps that vaccines that have the pre-fusion stabilized form of the spike will give you more robust neutralizing antibody titers and maybe preparations that have inactivated uh, viral particles, which will have maybe more reflective of the actual infection. The post-fusion confirmation as well might have antibodies that have other functions other than neutralizing activity, but perhaps might not elicit the same type of neutralizing antibodies. Those are the critical experiments that I think still need to be performed. And the key point there being, again, that with natural immunity, there's a wide array of titers people will actually develop. And we hope that vaccine-induced immunity would be better. But Jonathan, what you're getting at is that the virus in circulation may have different forms of the spike, which may be preferential targets for protection or perhaps distracting targets for protection. Is that what's going on? Exactly. One way of putting it is that as an immune evasion strategy, the spike has effectively the ability to be in the post-fusion confirmation on an individual virus particle. That being said, you probably have hundreds of copies of the spike protein on the viral particle, and maybe I would assume two or three are required to productively infect the cell. And so from the standpoint of vaccine design, this is also a very big area of interest that Dr. Rubin just mentioned for generating stabilized antigens. For viruses that are difficult to neutralize with antibodies listed by vaccination, a lot of this work is, again, to give the best target to antibodies so that we're biasing the immune response, perhaps to be superior to natural immunity. And this is a key tenet of what's being done, for example, with HIV vaccines. So you've begun talking about the role of viral variants in transmissibility and in escape from immunity. Looking at transmission, what do you see as the properties of these variants that might contribute to the altered biology there? That's an excellent question. I think there are several ways a virus can effectively mutate so that it's more transmissible. I mean, the most basic way, perhaps, is the fact that as the virus is transmitted from animal host to humans, it first has to have the ability to latch on to ACE2, the human form of ACE2 in particular. So if the virus is able to somehow find a solution that is better at recognizing human ACE2, that perhaps might make the virus more transmissible. So from a structural standpoint, the N501Y mutation that's found in the B117 variant is a perfect example of a mutation that at least the way it looks from a structural standpoint is most likely a host adaptation mutation. It allows the viral spike protein RBD to more efficiently recognize human ACE2. Now, taking a step back, another way for a virus to be more transmissible is by making the phase of infection that's asymptomatic, where people can still spread virus, prolonged. Conversely, at the tail end of infection, individuals continue to shed virus and have a longer period of recovery at the population level that might make the virus spread more readily. And then lastly, the idea of fomites, you know, viruses being able to sit on surfaces. So any virus is inactivated after a given period of time. This depends on the humidity of the room, the amount of light exposure. And so viruses in principle could have mutations that make them more stable so that they can sit on surfaces longer. And that might also increase their transmission. 
Jonathan, when you look across the variants that are out there right now, the B117, the B1351, the couple of Brazilian variants, where do you see them fitting in the model that you just proposed in those few different types of interactions? Do they tend to be better receptor binders? Do they survive longer on surfaces? What are their characteristics that appear to be occurring as variations occurring in the human population that we're seeing right now? That's an excellent question and very hard to answer. Um, I would say that they most likely are a conflation of mutations that allow for better human host adaptation to binding ACE2, as well as escaping neutralizing antibodies. I like to think about each residue more from a functional standpoint, like the N501Y mutation, I think is sort of a backbone mutation that's shared amongst all the variants. And perhaps that one is more specifically geared towards ACE2 binding. And then the E484K mutation found in both the P1 and B1351 variants, that mutation is probably more a neutralizing antibody escape. Uh, if you look at the molecular structure, that particular residue is not really that important in interacting with ACE2, but the 501 position is. So I sort of see 501 as the main mutation and the other mutations as sort of additions to the RBD that allow for more efficient neutralization escape. And that being said, there's probably going to be continued evolution in both of those areas, the ability to more efficiently recognize human ACE2 over time, as well as the ability to more efficiently escape neutralizing antibodies. Jonathan, there's been a lot of focus on the spike protein for obvious reasons. It's the primary antigenic target and it's the primary interactor with the cell. If you look at across the rest of the viral genome though, are there changes going on? Does there seem to be any direction to evolution there or is not much going on there? That's an excellent question. So while I think antibodies are sort of easy to study, I mean, one can take a blood draw and measure titers. There's a lot that we don't understand from the standpoint of how the virus is interacting with our innate immune system once it's actually inside the cell. There are RNA sensors and other proteins you know, that interact with interferon, and their job is to effectively control viral replication. And the virus has also evolved strategies against that. That being said, when I've given a quick look, it seems that some proteins are indeed mutated. In some cases, you can have truncations or stop codons that are introduced. But I would say that the functional implications of those changes are not well understood because we lack the same degree of molecular toolkits, we have to ask direct questions that we have with antibodies. So you've talked about another concern about these viral variants, their potential ability to escape antibody-mediated protection. So can you tell us how that works? So yes, the way I think about the RBD on the spike protein is sort of a molecular key, and ACE2 is effectively the lock on the cell the virus is trying to enter. So the job of the antibody really is to come in, bind the key, and prevent it from interacting with ACE2 or getting into this lock. Now, that being said, uh, escape variant is effectively a different key that still gets into the receptor, but no longer can be recognized by the antibody. And so uh, from the standpoint of the solutions the virus can explore to do this, I mean, it could just change parts of the key so the antibody is no longer recognized. There are some cases where antibodies binding, say, to make this a little bit complicated here, uh, conserved parts of the key or conserved parts of the spike could still work, but there are also low-hanging fruits that the key or RBD can easily get rid of. 
and the antibodies will no longer be able to recognize it. And so it's a way of really for the virus to shape shift in a way that does not affect its ability to bind to ACE2, but does obliterate recognition by antibodies. So given all of that, from your standpoint as a structural biologist, what are the biggest concerns about viral variation? So as a structural biologist, the way I think about the RBD is having two parts, a stable core, as well as a long loop, whose job it is to interact with diverse sets of ACE2 molecules as the virus circulates in either humans or different mammals. And so this loop is not constrained from the standpoint of what it can do to be able to bind to these diverse sets of ACE2 molecules, which means it can do a lot to evade antibodies. And so this flexibility is what concerns me from the standpoint of, will the virus evolve a solution to ACE2 binding that is so different from the original strain that from the standpoint of antibodies, it would be unrecognizable. And so, for example, SARS-CoV, the virus that caused the outbreak in 2002 and 2003, also has a loop that binds ACE2. But that loop is different enough that if you were to do neutralizing assays, for example, with SARS-CoV convalescent donor plasma, you wouldn't see activity against SARS-CoV-2. Conversely, if you take SARS-CoV-2 convalescent donor plasma, you would not see activity against SARS-CoV-1. And so that tells us that the virus effectively can explore these solutions that are so diverse that, you know, vaccine boosters might be required. A part that I didn't mention is that T cells might come and save the day. Another point to be made is something that Dr. Baden brought up earlier on, the point that antibodies have other functions than neutralizing activity. And so I'm hopeful that better understanding these other functions of antibodies and other arms of the immune system will offer reassurance that the neutralizing activity that it's lost through escape won't mean there'll be loss of protection. So I don't want to break your optimistic streak there, Jonathan, but I did want to get an idea of, in your crystallographer's crystal ball, um, what scares you the most? I mean, where could evolution take us that would be more difficult? Yeah, so I'll put the virologist as well as structural biologist had on to comment that what I'm worried about is this plateau of cases whereby the virus is still circulating in the community. And I think there's some analogies there to be drawn to what happens with chronic infection of humans with RNA viruses. And what happens, for example, in the case of HIV is that you can actually at some point, start switching the core receptor you use. So you go from CCR5 to CXCR4. So my concern is that there'll be so much pressure on this loop that perhaps the virus might evolve alternate solutions to getting into cells that are completely distinct than this actual receptor binding motif on the RBD. And so I think ultimately decreasing the amount of virus that's circulating out there is a huge priority because RNA viruses do have the flexibility to sort of outclever us in that regard. So that's what I would be concerned about, a receptor switch or a solution that is so different to binding ACE2 that it becomes obsolete to the current vaccines and antibodies. So ironically, what you're saying, I think, is that the 
best defense we have for our vaccines to make sure they continue to work is things like masking and social distancing to decrease the total amount of circulating virus at the same time that vaccines are being rolled out. Yes, and I would say also equitable distribution of vaccines because you know certain areas of the world that are not getting access to vaccines and there's uncontrolled replication there, that's just again more time for the virus to circulate and explore different solutions for binding ACE2 to escape neutralizing antibodies. So I think there's a global health point to be made there as well that we're all connected we all need to wear masks and we all need to get vaccinated. I mean, willingly, of course, in order to suppress the amount of virus that's circulating out there and give it less chances to evolve into something scarier. Jonathan, just in thinking about this evolutionary dance that you're explaining to us, this virus jumped species. So it had the flexibility to bind ACE2 across species. Now that it's in a new species, it's figuring out how to improve its fitness for the new species, both in terms of how it gets into cells and replicates and how it avoids that species host defense, the immune responses we're talking about. So I wonder if what we're seeing is this convergent evolution in different parts of the world as the virus figures out the logical ways to adapt to the human condition. And will this eventually become more measles-like, where presumably measles has solved its structural needs to best infect humans and then is relatively stable, as opposed to HIV or influenza-like, which has a much greater flexibility in how they continue to evolve? How do you think about that? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. And I would say that is a critical question in the field now. It's basically asking, will SARS-CoV-2 become like endemic coronaviruses and annually be able to sort of cause cold and flu-like illnesses? In the case of SARS-CoV-2, it's, of course, more severe. Um, a lot of us were hopeful in the beginning of the pandemic that because SARS-CoV-2 has a proofreading enzyme called the exonuclease, and because it has a very big genome and can't afford to make mistakes, that it was effectively constrained in what it could do from the standpoint of antigenic drift. That being said, the drift is happening now. And so the idea of an asymptote, I think, is an interesting one, meaning is there a convergent solution to binding ACE2 that will all evolve towards, I would say, the answer is probably no, because the antibody responses are so dynamic that this tug and play will not really stop. Perhaps the most impressive finding that I've come across recently is how much antigenic flexibility SARS-CoV-2 actually has. So I mentioned the RBD as a primary target for neutralizing antibodies. There's another site in the S1 protein called the N-terminal domain NTD. And that site was a very exciting site as a target for neutralizing antibodies with potent antiviral activity. Now, recently we've learned that the virus can actually delete parts of the N-terminal domain so that it's no longer recognized by neutralizing antibodies. So I would say we just don't know enough yet and we're still learning, uh, but the virus has the ability to uh, shift itself in ways that perhaps we didn't appreciate before. Maybe not as severe as influenza, influenza can just swap segments, but coronaviruses do have some flexibility, and maybe that's why there's some other coronaviruses that are annual 
ones that we see recurrently. Thank you very much for joining us today, Jonathan. And as usual, thank you, Eric, and thank you, Lindsay.